0: Tim and Sam's podcast. 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 Sam and have a seven. podcast which is really, really eight great. They. On a plane. Tim's luscious walk, Sam's shiny paint, make them the very best of or mates. So, or welcome or to or the pod. Sam has the news. Tim has reviews. Is really, or political or news. Well, days are confused. Or or it's or the podcast of choose
1: Analysis or up our metalisi, like with musical Welcome to the 50th episode of the Classical Music Pod. 50? Oh boy. I feel like we should be raising
0: our bats to the podcast pavilion.
1: I wonder if there's any completist. Anyone who's listened to every single episode other than my Mum and your brother.
0: Mm. Well, we struck gold with today's guest, the composer and band leader Cassie Kinoshi, who joined us over Zoom last week to preview her upcoming Aurora Orchestra Commission which is being performed on the 27th of November at King's Place. One of the main topics in our conversation was how labels and preconceptions can be limiting for musicians. Hmm. I'll therefore be giving her no further introduction <laughs> so as not to plant any preemptive seeds in our listeners' brains.
1: I like what you've done there because Seed, of course, is the name of her band.
0: Interview, 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 Hey, let's, let's begin at the beginning, as it were. You're from Wellwyn Garden City, I believe. Yeah, Wellin. Wellin. Ah, oh, apologies. Yeah. Sorry. Uh, <laughs>
2: what was it like
0: growing up there as a... 90s kid, because I think we're about the same age. I think you're 93, aren't you? That's that's what Google yeah. says anyway. So I'm I'm 92. So oh, okay. 90s child, well in Garden City, what was that like?
2: Uh, interesting. I mean, uh, firstly, it wasn't a very diverse place, so I think that was quite noticeable growing up. Um, mm. You know, even from a very young age. Um, it was really noticeable but I think one thing that I kind of looked back on and really enjoyed was the fact that it's even though it's not very far from North London it's like 20 minutes outside there's a sort of crossover between the countryside and being able to like as a kid and as a teenager you're sort of um, able to walk through the woods and like explore like fields and stuff like that as well as the town side of things where there's more um, you know like Mm. little things to do kind of (laughs) things to do yeah it was interesting because I think because though there wasn't much to do I was one of those people that kind of got lost a bit in a lot of imagination and like those kinds of creative things because creative of that.
0: yeah well, what was your first do you, what was your first vivid musical memory then from your time <laughs> in
2: Berlin? I think um so my grandparents had a piano in their house and my parents um when obviously they've all grown up so they moved the piano into our house from my grandparents so we had like a real piano in the house Mm. and um I remember making up like a duet for me and my brother at the piano and um it's one of my most vivid memories Like I wrote a duet for us and we were just singing about things that make us happy like ice cream and stuff like that and then we performed (laughs) it to our parents and still we, we both still remember the melody to it and everything and I think that's one of my favorite memories is like making up little musical things with my little brother.
0: <laughs> I read somewhere that you, the one of the earliest compositions you did was to a fable advert. Um, <laughs> yeah. Is that, is that true? I love that. Yeah.
2: Yeah. I was, um, so the composers I was obsessed with when I was like a teenager were Danny Elfman and Joe Hisaishi. So obviously um, Danny Elfman wrote the fable music and I was like, Oh, I, I really want to write for, Video games, let me see if I can. I don't know, just come up with my own thing. So I downloaded sketchily off of YouTube the Fable advert and just wrote something in Garage Band, I think it was, hmm. along to it, just as kind of practice. And yeah, so I did do that. <laughs> okay, yeah. And pretty soon
0: the saxophone becomes your primary instrument and you go to Tomorrow's Warriors, the educational development organization in London and ultimately end up at Trinity Conservatoire. At which point did it become... <laughs> it's a bit of a crass question, but at which point did it become <laughs> obvious that you were, you know, good, that you were really good, that this was what you were going to do?
2: Um, no, I don't really remember. I mean, I, I guess the sort of day that I... or day, the time of um, in the timeline where I, I felt like um, composition was maybe a viable thing, because I, I, I enjoyed doing it, I just didn't know really the roots into it and stuff was in sixth form, actually, when, um, was it A-level music? You had to write something about a toy box coming to life, which I loved doing. And then the teacher there um, said, oh, wow, it seems like, you know, you're quite good at this and this is something that, you know, you should carry on doing this. And that was the first time, well, maybe second time, I can't remember, but, like, someone had said that, um, yeah, this is something you might be able to do. Mm that's quite late isn't it don't you think sick form yeah maybe it is like i mean like when i was um i, I there was always encouragement with music and stuff like that but um so that i had like at various points like my my first piano teacher because i actually had i started piano first when i was about um when mm. i was six so when i started then eventually towards the end of having lessons with my teacher um bring like little things I'd written. He was like, oh yeah, bring more things. So there was always that kind of encouragement there mm-hmm. um, at various places and where teachers thought it was possible to do, I guess. Yeah. Yeah, but it is quite late. It was only six when I realised, because I was going to go study um, journalism or English lit and music, and it was only maybe six when I co- kind of realised or thought, yeah, maybe I should go and study composition and get better at it. So.
0: Yeah. Do you think you had what James O'Brien calls the look at me gene at that point, were you quite keen? I mean, this is more in your performance. Did you enjoy being up on stage and being the center of attention? Was that ever part of your personality?
2: This is something I'm trying to understand because (laughs) when I was in um, primary school, um, like I loved to be involved in music and performance, but I was always very shy. And like, Mm. even when I was on stage and like, um, maybe playing a role, singing in the choir and stuff, I just felt so anxious and never really liked being the centre of attention. So I'm trying to, I think now I've been kind of forced to be more comfortable with um, performing and I do enjoy it. Um, and I've been surrounded by people that kind of push me in that sense, like the performance side of things. But I think I've always just wanted to, a weird mixture of slightly performing, but maybe behind the scenes composing, because I'm mm. a bit of an introverted I yeah. think, <laughs> kind of person.
0: Was so, it pretty, was it kind of uncomfortable then, the first big gigs that you started doing when you started to make a name for yourself?
2: Yeah, we've, um, so in the band that I play in, Kokoroko, which is like sort of jazz and Afrobeat influenced kind of music, we perform a lot and we dance. And for me, I'm, I'm not used to doing that and, you know, being quite centre of attention in that kind of way. Mm. So, um yeah, for me it was quite uncomfortable, but I was lucky enough to be in positions where, as I said, like surrounded by people that make me comfortable. It's like, yeah, you can do this, and i I'm now I feel like I'm quite um, I'm okay with doing that kind of thing. And but at first, yeah, it was a bit bit awkward. Bit <laughs> tricky, yeah.
0: Mentioned Kokoro, the other band. Just for the benefit of our listeners, that you set up in 2016, Seed. It was Seed Ensemble then, and that's just Seed. And you're also in Neria. I I hope I'm saying that right.
2: Yep. You. Yep. That's correct.
0: Good. Were they formed around the similar time as Seed 2016, or are they a bit later on? Seed. Mm,
2: yeah. So Seed 2016. uh Neria was like put together in 20. 20- I think, 2013 or 14. So yeah, it's been a a while. And then Kokoroko was 2014 or something. So similar, kind of similar times.
0: Yeah. Well, it was Cocoroco's performance at the proms two years ago when there was no audience. That was the first time that I'd come across you. And then I was lucky enough to catch Nabaya Garcia at the most recent season so before i started researching this interview mostly from that experience in the proms i had this idea in my head of what the quote-unquote london jazz scene was about and i'd read about the scene in the paper and i'd been i'd actually been to steam down a few times there i think it's new cross um yeah it's in it's in
2: yeah i think it's in new cross now
0: Newcross now. I I've been with my cousin because he lives down or did used to live down there and he was like, You've got to come to this night, it's amazing. So I yeah, as I say, I feel like I had a a kind of idea of what the London jazz scene was about. But I was scrolling through your Twitter feed and I was really interested to see that you, you posted about a night called Moment's Notice, and you said mm. it throws together improvisers from different spheres of the quote-unquote London jazz scene. And then you said, it's the only series I know that acknowledges the scene isn't just a group of about 10 artists. And that, (laughs) I found that really interesting and that uh, challenged me because, well, it challenged my perception anyway. First of all, talk me through what are those different spheres?
2: Well, London has so many different interpretations of or sort of lines drawn away from the words jazz or what jazz, the African-American art form jazz. Just like has has have has there, just like how there has been um, historically, there's been different interpretations of how to improvise and how to create and how everyone collaborates, and I think that's very apparent in London as well. There's different um, ways of playing jazz. There's different ways of composing jazz. There's different ways of writing it. There's like the more experimental stuff, the more big band sounding stuff, like large ensemble stuff, uh, and then the music that's at the forefront at the moment of what the Um, inverted commas London jazz scene is the stuff I guess that's been combined um, more overtly with um, dub and um, sort of like jungle and all that kind of stuff like whilst everyone has uh, all their different kinds of influences um, that's like the influence that I think is at the forefront of what's presented in the media at the moment yeah Um, but I guess by my tweet meant that there is so much more to the London jazz scene and then on about the UK jazz scene, then I think is what um, is given space and given attention in the way right. I think it deserves to be. Um, yeah. yeah, I guess it's just like, in, I feel like, um, you know, in America, there are like the household jazz names, but at the same time, there's a bit more space for all different types of that same music. Whereas mm. in the UK, I, I've noticed that the media doesn't necessarily allow that same space.
0: Do you think it's different in the States in the media? Do you think there's more subtlety over there in the way that it's reported?
2: I think so, because it's it's an, Amer- it's an African-American art form and, you know, it's one that has influenced their culture in a, in a different way to how it's... Um, influence the UK the UK music culture but it's from there so it's more ingrained in their musical systems than it is I think over here so I I have noticed that in the US there is a bit more acceptance of different styles of jazz and different and more collaboration between those um, different groups of artists as well Um, like example like the alto sax player Steve Lehman who's you know well, you should just listen to his music and see for yourself. But that uh, he plays with people like Eleanor Hint- Pinderhughes, who then plays with Christian Scott, and like there's all these crossovers. So, um, yeah, bit subt- a bit more subtleties.
0: More subtlety. Okay, so who in the UK would you would you want to highlight at the moment that you've particularly perhaps somebody that you've particularly enjoyed playing with? That yeah, isn't, that, well, that isn't necessarily I don't know spoken about in the the Guardian long read about the London jazz scene.
2: Yeah, I mean, like one that. Um, one artist who, he used to be the first trumpeter in Seed, actually, Miguel Garodi, like he released an album with his nine-piece band like a couple years ago called, I can't remember what it's called because it's like a really long word, poly-something-inia or something. <laughs> but the music's really great. Like the com- composition is amazing. Um, and then you've got people like um, the keys player, Maria Chiara Agriro, who's playing like electronic electronics mixed with jazz and this kind of very visual stuff i think there's space for all of these artists on the on in a certain level um mm. but it's yeah it's unfor- a little bit unfortunate that it's not necessarily presented like that
0: yeah i hear what you're saying well i mean yeah probably guilty of that as well just as i say because my idea i, I think i had i had this idea of the london jazz scene as being a very specific mm. thing and it was it revolved around the the guys that went to Tomorrow's Warriors and, and and that was where the heart of it was. And obviously that's, you know, a misrepresentation. And I found that, you know, I'm glad that I was, <laughs> that you've challenged me on that. Well,
2: um, in a sense, I mean, Tomorrow's Warriors have been very influential on like the London jazz scene. But I think my comment is more that there is also other things as well happening that are just as equally interesting. Yeah. Um, as the people that kind of came from that, school and also it's quite um you know there's people that are kind of pulled into that narrative that aren't necessarily from that narrative as well so there's just um yeah just i think the media can be a bit broad in their mind a little bit
0: yeah i suppose it's easy for a journalist to get uh sucked into a narrative at the expense of the noughts I understand that you're you a big that you've been reading Sun Ra biography and he's a massive <laughs> yeah what a fascinating character I understand Absolutely. that he his band when they lived together in Philadelphia they had to be available for practice at any hour of the day <laughs> and I love that <laughs> is is that how you work with seed are you <laughs> absolutely not
2: <laughs> no no we don't like we don't live in a commune and we don't <laughs> um yeah no I mean that yeah very intense Sunra on how he works um I'm tr- I've tried to imagine how that would kind of manifest in today's world where everyone's sort of doing so many things and mm. uh, yeah but
0: in short, no. <laughs> In short, it's a bit more chilled then, is it?
2: <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think, yeah, it's a little bit more chilled. I'm trying to get a bit more on top of um, regular rehearsals because I think, you know, that's the best way to go about things. Yeah.
0: Like, yeah. Yeah, fair enough. That's one element of your performance, you playing with Seed and writing for Seed, but you've also written for the concert hall. You were on the, the LSO, panophonic Scheme. And you've written pieces for theatre and ballet as well. A lot of that, all of that work that I've managed to listen to feels to me, again, this is just me, but it feels rooted in a, here's that word again, in, in the jazz medium. I'm I'm doing, you can't see, but I'm doing inverted, <laughs> inverted commas. Do you think that that word is kind of similar to what we were just talking about, but do you think that's a useful label, that word, or does it feel restrictive to say that you're...
2: Um, yeah, I think it's not very useful being labeled as a jazz composer that's sort of moving into the yeah classical and theatrical spheres really um I think just the word composer or like musician is a bit more yeah just in general not just for me but I think uh, a lot of um, musicians I know and creatives I know it just um allows a bit more room especially Mm -hmm. when you begin writing for orchestras and stuff like that or um get hired for theatre things and everyone's like oh you're a jazz composer there's it it implements this kind of stamp on what sound you are able to create and what sounds you do create whereas I guess um not trying to box everything into a genre um specific thing um yeah, it just allows more room for you to create as well without having the pressure of certain expectations right. and also just doesn't yeah, it doesn't necessarily sum up what you can do. Yeah. If um
0: So that's interesting. So you you feel that being again some the media perhaps bo- boxing you into or calling you a jazz composer actually has a real life impact on the music that you end up that you, that you then go on writing. You said because you feel is that what you're saying or
2: um, I mean, it can it doesn't, well, for me, I just write what I, <laughs> yeah. not really, I think it's more that just the interpretation outside of what your ability, how far your abilities go and what you yeah. are able to do and what sounds that people expect you to make, really, yes. um, or think you might make when they get you, bring you onto a project, whereas um, just, yeah, as I said, like the label composer or musician and whatever, just has a bit more space around yeah. it.
0: Absolutely sorry to keep bringing up your tweets there. that's <laughs> fine It's another one that i read I've sh- it's, it's really useful because <laughs> it, it's often a, a much more honest medium than if you'd like trawl through the people's clippings press clippings and things yeah um, sometimes that can that that's either got an agenda of the, the journalist as we've spoken about before or or it can be s- something slightly glossed over but scrolling through somebody's twitter feed is often a little, a little bit more enlightening <laughs> but i mean so another thing you said i don't think that jazz composition is as respected or held as in as uh, high esteem in the same way over here in the UK as compared to the US or even Europe. Why do you think that is in the UK that it's not?
2: Um, I just don't think we have um, the infrastructure or have put in the time maybe to create the infrastructure that supports composition in jazz uh, in the same way that I've seen it is supported in... The U- I mean, obviously, the US, as I said earlier, like it is it is an African-American art form. So, of course, mm. they're going to have historically have grown to have those infrastructures and support systems. But I, I just think um, there's a focus maybe over here on the performance aspect, um, more so than the composition aspect, where in as I've seen in the US and how it's sort of the platforms that are given and the spaces that are given, there's a bit more equality between those two art forms mm-hmm. um, and they're treated with the same respect. And they're, it's acknowledged that you need to put in the same amount of time that you put into practicing your instrument into composition um, and the skill that goes into that composing, whether it's a f- small ensemble or for solo instrument or for larger ensemble, is acknowledged as a a skill that needs to be developed really. Mm. Whereas I think in the UK, whilst there is respect in a way for jazz, um, it's not it's just not the same really. I think that's what I was getting at there. Yeah,
0: yeah.
2: And, uh, same with arranging as well. Like arranging is a really overlooked skill in the UK. Oh, would you say it is? So I think, so. Oh, at least in jazz, <laughs>
0: because obviously there, there's a huge amount to be gained from being an, arra- an arranger in that you're getting into somebody else's musical skin and you're learning, you're picking up all of their. Uh, you know, I, I find it with writing actually because, a, a, a early career uh, writing features and like reviews, I would sit down and read a bunch of really good writers. Uh, who I respected and then I would actually just almost emulate this their structure in a review yeah. that I was writing and use that as a tool to develop my own voice and but I yeah I suppose, no, it's
2: really similar that's really the same
0: yeah and arranging is is I suppose valuable in that way in that you're you're it's a great development tool but are you saying that it's underrated as an art form or a as a or just as a skill
2: as a skill and as an art form, like um, when you, I can't think of any examples, like musical examples at the moment. But when you like sort of take a someone else's music and then you either add to it through arranging from what's already there, or you completely change something. Um, there's a lot of time that goes into be, get getting good at that and practicing it and getting better at that, mm-hmm. which I just feel is not necessarily just. Um, it's just not necessarily accepted in the same way as performance performance seems to be at the forefront of a lot of things um really mm-hmm. um which i guess makes sense in a way
0: but. you know, no i understand what you mean it's not it's not as sexy is it like somebody doing <laughs> like a, a absolutely rad solo on stage compared to somebody sitting in a <laughs> in their bedroom for 12 hours
2: it can be though it can be you know like miguel atwood ferguson and all these kind of people it can be like yeah in that way yeah yeah no no
0: i i'm with you i'm I'm with you i mean i that's it's sexy to me and i'm glad you
2: can't see my facial expressions
1: (laughs) oh no i didn't i didn't mean
0: like Oh god, that sounded creepy. I didn't mean it like that. <laughs> I gather your process start, always starts off with singing, and you like making voice notes. Uh, and what? I mean, why do you think that is? Why are you drawn to singing as your first point of call?
2: Um I'm not sure I'm I'm wondering if it's um cuz I've been trying to think about this the more I think about process and like being deliberate with process and stuff like that I'm wondering if it's um just um it's just where I'm most comfortable I've always kind of like hummed things like since I was really young I'll be humming i like, humming along to myself and stuff like that and I know that the voice is like one of the most kind of um it's very it's just a very human way of approaching melody and approaching writing and i think maybe that's mm. why i feel so connected to to keeping that habit up and writing starting off a lot of compositions that way yeah um rather than just sitting and writing oh yeah
0: have you got any voice notes on your phone that still exist
2: i've got loads i've got um so this current phone i've got 200 something at the oh, moment because I lost I lost 200 when I had to restart my phone like a couple of months ago so I should have 400 and something but um yeah I kind of e- each phone I I save them like into a folder and then I, I can backtrack to maybe like 2018 oh this idea I I'd never made into something yeah. let me take that and um use it to develop a composition so
0: are there any that you'd be willing to share? <laughs> <laughs>
2: Um, no, because they're not labelled and it's just like numbers. I don't know what I'd click on. It could be anything. It could be just, it could be absolutely just.
0: No, fair enough. And what's the next stage after you've got the voice note? Are you you, heading off into the piano or to the, or to Logic or to, I to your sax?
2: Um, it depends on the piece really. So sometimes, um, a lot of the times it will be singing and then at the piano and then sort of fleshing it out at the piano I've noticed that that's sort of my next comfortable instrument to go to when writing. Yeah. Um, And then, yeah, like sometimes I'll sing it straight into Logic and then I'll transcribe it on sax in Logic, if that makes sense. So yeah. like play along to this singing or yeah, it all depends really. I think just a multitude of processes for, for that.
0: And what about this piece that you're writing for Aurora that's happening on 27th november king's place
2: <laughs> that's been a lot of singing a lot of singing um a lot of sort of um trying to sing drum notation to myself and like walking in circles around the living room to get the, <laughs> to get oh, the really? time signature <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah um or just figure out what it is i want to do really because it's not, it's not really it's not like the music's com- like complicated really yeah. but um yeah, lots of singing for that, and then writing it into Sibelius, not not logic, and using the piano in my voice.
0: Right. Yeah. So, what can we expect from this piece? What's What's the inspiration? What's it about?
2: So it's a suite. It's a just like at the moment collection of four, three or four choose depending if I I want to use one of them. Um, and it's just um, inspired by memories or ways I've connected with my grandparents from each of the three um, countries that my heritage is from Mm -hmm. so it's just about that it's kind of like a nostalgic capturing like the nostalgic emotion that I feel when I think about my grandparents and think about um like the cultures that I am connected to well which countries are they so my um my mum's side of family is from St Vincent and the Grenadines, which is a Caribbean island. Then my dad's is half Sierra Leonean, half Nigerian, and like, he grew up in both of those so, countries. So I have a connection to sort of both of those cultures.
0: Mm-hmm. is it about aurora Was there something specific about them that that drew you to this commission
2: yeah so firstly i've always since i went to uni i've always wanted to work with aurora orchestra um reason being that for me they were one of the most open-minded and um interesting orchestras that in in London just because they really were interested in like improvisation like individual members of oral orchestra as well interested in just like pushing inverted commas like pushing boundaries and like you know just trying to um create new things and collaborate with people and I thought that um they would be the kind of the perfect ensemble to work with for something like this where it's bringing a jazz band in with um, maybe more musicians that are more leaning towards the classical side of things. So
0: mm-hmm. yeah, they're a cool band. I mean,
2: my, uh, yeah, cool. <laughs> the, the, my
0: my experience of them is uh, playing Beethoven without Beethoven's seven symphony without a score standing mm-hmm. up. And I've just always been blown away by that. And I, I think there's something really special about playing without music in that way, because they, mm-hmm. I don't know, maybe this is, maybe I'm over-connecting something here, but because they don't have the score, that it feels, It always feels to me, listening to that recording, that they're feeling it in a way that uh, improvisers and jazz musicians playing improvised music would, or, or certainly how I played music growing up playing in a, in a big band, jazz band, mm. where I was you know not really looking at the music and it kind of has that energy to it and that's what I loved about their performances anyway but maybe that's just uh in my head
2: no I mean no no I think definitely there's a way like there's a different connection you do have when you memorize when you've memorized something and you're just performing it sort of out of your body not staring at um Hmm music in a way i think there is and i can imagine like especially coming from a, well i mean classical musicians memorize stuff all the time like i was gonna say well maybe like there's more of staring at things when you're in a classical setting and that Mm. kind of whole but um yeah there's just a yeah Mm? i I
0: reckon pros i don't know if they're turning (laughs) up and they've got one rehearsal and they're playing a a concert and they have to use the dots, really, don't they, but
2: yeah, the slight reading, yeah, and the yeah, that's true, but yeah, but
0: a concert violinist, I guess a lot of them will have it completely memorized, won't they,
2: yeah, I but, think. as you said, though, there is something about um memorizing something, and I guess because that particular piece of music is. Usually it's red, isn't it? It's like so. There's probably is a different connection to it when you're memorizing that and you're standing up and performing it. I can imagine yeah, that that changes how you feel connected to that piece of music. Really.
0: Mm. What is the influence of Ornette Coleman on this "Skies of America"? I read that. Well, I read that there is an influence there.
2: Mm. I think. That was initially, like, Skies of America was, like, initially one of the influences in this. Um, Not so much anymore. No, not really. But, like, in terms of that piece of music, that was the first time I've sort of heard a composer who was, I guess, like, similar to, to... you know, playing the alto, we both played the alto saxophone and moving, I guess, into more bringing the influences from that kind of world into the orchestral, more orchestral world. I think that was the first time in uni I'd ever heard someone that was treated as just um, a jazz performer and composer actually showing their skills in a different sound world. And then, yeah, that mm. that's why it was so, the first time I heard it, I was just really blown away because I'd never heard anything like it and um, never heard anything written by a jazz, um, in inverted commas, jazz saxophonist that kind of sounded like that and was more, um, yeah, just more classical. Really. Yeah. Uh, would you say there's something
0: of a lineage of saxophonist come third stream composers we've already talked about, Ornette Coleman now and Sun Ra. Uh, Wayne Short is one that, I'm aware of, and he's got this, I can't remember what it's called now, this opera that's coming up.
2: Yeah, um, well, I can't remember the name of it, but that's in uh, with Esperanza Spalding. With, with that, Esperanza
0: uh, Spalding, who's just one of my absolute favourite
2: Yeah, artists. she's brilliant. Absolutely.
0: Mm. So, yeah, I, I guess there is a bit of a tradition, what a tradition of which you are a part, I suppose. Mm. I mean... Or not? I don't
2: know. <laughs> no, I guess, I guess so. I guess so. I don't know. There's, but there's a lot of, um, yeah, sax players that write, or just musicians that are presented as ba- that will come from a, a jazz background, I guess. Because I know earlier we spoke about this, and like I was saying how it's not it's not nice to be presented as like this jazz person that's moving into classical yeah. world but i guess like if you that's the genre you're most associated with and mostly play and influences a lot of your stuff there's people like um the pianist vijay ayah and like the alto sax player steve layman who also write for orchestra and just meld those two worlds together really so yeah
0: no apologies i i'm i've highlighted the mistake I make I've made already and I'm still sort of trying to put you in a box and that's I think that's just... oh no
2: that was me as well like I'm trying to like I'm like what language can I use to kind of move away from what we just spoke about because I, I feel like I was doing that
0: <laughs> but it's fascinating isn't it? like I, I'm so aware of it and yet I think it's just a I think there are so many inbuilt prejudices there that we just can't like even thinking about it quite intensely for the last sort of few days and Despite us having just talked about it, my default setting seems to be to apply these meaningless labels. Hey Sam, I've set up a coffee donation page for the podcast.
1: What is a coffee donation page, Tim?
0: It's like Patreon, in that it allows people to financially support creative projects they enjoy.
1: If you'd like to buy us a tasty coffee, links in the, the description. If you'd like to buy us a, like a tasty coffee, links in the description. If you'd like to buy us a coffee, links
0: like in to buy us a coffee, in the description. Anyway talk to me about your passion for video games
2: (laughs) yeah no i've always been obsessed with video games um it's always been like a way to escape or like connect with other people back when (laughs) back when you had to be in the same room as people to play multiplayer but um yeah it's just a way of connecting with people and stuff like that um and then musically, like, the first soundtrack I kind of became obsessed with was um, Steve, the drummer Steve Copeland's um, soundtrack for Spyro Year of the Dragon. So yeah. um, it was just the most amazing thing I'd ever heard. I was like, wow, video game music. And then it was from that I, I began to see how it was moving into the sort of or- well, the orchestral stuff and... Um, melding together all of these different sound worlds in in Mm. just for just for a video game I say just Mm. for a video but didn't mean to sound demeaning in that sense but like um (laughs) (laughs) yeah for a video game yeah that's pretty much my obsession with video games just the escapism both um creatively and escapism um that exists musically as well
0: do you have any ambition to write music for video games?
2: Yeah, absolutely. That's kind of one of the main reasons I went to study composition was I really, really want to write for video games um, and video games and film, really. Um, So I'm hoping that eventually I can move into doing more of that stuff. Like, I've done it once before. I I went to like a, what's it called? Game, a world game jam, which is where you have to make a video game in a day. So when Mm -hmm. I was in uni, I just turned up and there was no composer. I said, like, I can write music just to this group of this big uh, room of mainly men making video games. But I, I did join... <laughs> <laughs> I, I like I joined one team and I made little soundtracks for them. So. How
0: was that? I mean, being in... Was that off-putting? That it was all...
2: Yeah, it was quite scary. I don't know how I did it because I feel like I'm quite a... or can be quite an anxious person. But I just walked in and was like... Um, I write music and most people just kind of looked up and then looked down again. But... Um, <laughs> But yeah, it was good. I think it was a really good experience. But um, yeah, it's a very male-dominated industry, especially, you know, programmers and composers yeah. in that sense.
0: And what about, I mean, you've worked across stage and film. Is it? Have you found it similarly male-dominated there?
2: Definitely, yeah. Film, theatre, they're all quite heavily male-dominated industries, really. Um, more,
0: more so than the sort of... Uh, than the live performing kind of world that you um, in, inhabit with seed
2: I think that's also, that also that also is as well uh, oh, really? yeah. um yeah i i do think it is like definitely especially um jazz there's there's way more um female instrumentalists who are leading bands and at the forefront of bands and um that are Pushed to the forefront in terms of um attention and support i think there's there always has been female instrumentalists in in the performance world it's just they weren't given the same platform and the same space Mm. um as maybe today so whilst today is better in that sense in the performing world um there's still a lot of room to grow yeah in that sense
0: okay so how would just looking ahead how would you like to see your industry the world that you're working in how would you like to see it changed in say 10 years time where would you like to see it going
2: um I think uh, allowing just allowing it to be space for people from different backgrounds to be involved I think it's this is one of the things I, I find myself repeating in a lot and just for myself, but just in general, because I think it's um, something that really needs to happen and really needs conscious effort from everyone to make it a real thing that happens, is allowing the art to be a space where voices from all sorts of backgrounds are heard. Um, mm-hmm. Because I honestly think that is the only way that art is going to keep developing and interesting ideas are going to be um, drawn into the arts world is by not judging, judging people and, and judging their capabilities before you've even seen them. Um, yeah, so I'm hoping that um, moving forwards, there's effort put into making the arts industry a bit more of an equal playing field in terms of what people can do and what people can offer and yeah. um, the voices that are heard.
0: Well, I, I think that's a really nice note to end on I mean I wholeheartedly agree with you there we've got to step out a little bit outside our
2: absolutely yeah
0: our comfort zones and prejudice yeah anyway I will let you get back to your composing thank you so much for coming on the podcast Cassie it's been a real pleasure
2: thank you too
1: purposeful purposelessness the meaningful meaninglessness, meaninglessness I should say pur- purposeful pur- purposeful purposelessness meaninglessness. I should say pur- purpose- Classical music pod, I should say. What a nice and reflective guest.
0: Yeah, I really enjoyed how classy she was because I feel like there were a couple of opportunities where she could have said, Come on now, you're being. You, we've just talked about this. And she didn't. She was very kind.
1: Yeah, no pouncing. No pouncing. But then I maybe it's just me, but I think some people with fewer insecurities pounce less. And it sounds like she's pretty settled in her musical personality and who she's becoming. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, can I just pick up on Cassie's mention of Miguel Garodi, who is an absolute rock star trumpet player and was kind enough to play in a concert with me. Uh, a couple of years ago and... Also at King's Place. Also at King's Place called Birth of the Cool and he was just awesome in it and I very much enjoyed sharing, I think, a gluten-free beer with him afterwards. He's an absolute gent and well worth everyone checking out. But on maybe a more serious point, I thought it was really interesting how the pair of you struggled uh, with that labels issue and Mm. how do you promote a concert, tell people about music before they've heard it How do you get yourself into a concert program or introduce yourself to a promoter without using the kind of labels that everyone's used to? If you're a musician who kind of doesn't fit neatly into a box, it's a real challenge Mm -hmm. and a challenge for us to talk about it, I think. It is hard, yeah.
0: And actually going back and editing out all of my ums made for quite uncomfortable listening in the end because I kept slipping back into Mm. those preconceptions. And what she said right at the beginning of the conversation, I'm just pulling up a quote here, uh, not having labels allows more room for you to create without necessarily having the pressure of expectations kind of became a self-fulfilling prophecy by the end of the conversation where we both ended up slipping into that terminology when we were talking about Ornette Coleman and his influence. You know, does that demonstrate her point? Is that an internalization of what's happening in the media? Maybe it's not, but it certainly shows how hard it is to explain music to people without using those labels.
1: Mm, a sort of linguistic crutch that you maybe lean on, but you don't want to get stuck on it as that will limit the depth of your conversation, limit how specific you can be when you're talking about or listening to someone's full musical personality.
0: Mm-hmm. Interesting what what she spoke about regarding notation as well.
1: Yeah, and I've been thinking about this with singers and whether you put white dots in front of people, do they make a different sound, that sort of bird talis straight tone? Mm-hmm. have we internalized that when you see that you sound like this? Um, and maybe those like old Gershwin handwritten scores that you get from Boozy and Hawks, uh you can't actually read them, so you sort of have to refer to them mm-hmm. and then play off copy. It I think gets a different sound out of people. Uh I wonder what she'll be putting in front of Aurora.
0: Yeah, a reminder to go see her on the twenty seventh of November at King's Place. We'll be there like and subscribe like
1: and subscribe a big thanks to Cassie for coming on and being interviewed and thank you very much to all the listeners who've been there for our first 50 episodes here's to the next 50 tim Go!